0: CHAPTER 62. THE DART A word concerning an incident in the last chapter. According to the invariable usage of the fishery, the whaleboat pushes off from the ship, with the headsman, or whale killer, as temporary steersman, and the harpooner, or whale fastener, pulling the foremost oar, the one known as the harpooner oar. Now, it needs a strong, nervous arm to strike the first iron into the fish— For often, in what is called the long dart, the heavy implement has to be flung to the distance of twenty or thirty feet. But however prolonged and exhausting the chase, the harpooner is expected to pull his oar, meanwhile, to the uttermost. Indeed, he's expected to set an example of superhuman activity to the rest. Not only by incredible rowing, but by repeated loud and intrepid exclamations— and what it is to keep shouting at the top of one's compass while all the other muscles are strained and half-started. What that is, none know but those who have tried it. For one, I cannot bawl very heartily and work very recklessly at one and the same time. In this straining bawling state, then, with his back to the fish, all at once the exhausted harpooner hears the exciting cry, Stand up and give it to him, he now has to drop and secure his oar, turn round on his centre halfway, seize his harpoon from the crotch, and with what little strength may remain, he essays to pitch it somehow into the whale. No wonder, taking the whole fleet of whalemen in a body, that out of fifty fair chances for a dart not five are successful; no wonder that so many hapless harpooners are madly cursed and disrated. No wonder that some of them actually burst their blood vessels in the boat. No wonder that some sperm whalemen are absent four years with four barrels. No wonder that to many ship owners, whaling is but a losing concern. For it is the harpooner that makes the voyage. And if you take the breath out of his body, how can you expect to find it there when most wanted? Again, if the dart be successful, then at the second critical instant... That is, when the whale starts to run, the boat-header and harpooner likewise start to running fore and aft, to the imminent jeopardy of themselves and everyone else. It is then they change places, and the headsman, the chief officer of the little craft, takes his proper station in the bows of the boat. Now, I care not who maintains the contrary, but all this is both foolish and unnecessary. The headsman should stay in the bows from first to last, he should both dart the harpoon and the lance, and no rowing whatever should be expected of him, except under circumstances obvious to any fisherman. I know that this would sometimes involve a slight loss of speed in the chase, but long experience in various whalemen of more than one nation has convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in the fishery it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as the before-described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness, and not from out of toil. Chapter 63. The Crotch. Out of the trunk the branches grow, out of them the twigs. So in productive subjects grow the chapters. The crotch alluded to on a previous page deserves independent mention. It is a notched stick of a peculiar form some two feet in length, which is perpendicularly inserted into the starboard gunwale near the bow, for the purpose of furnishing a rest for the wooden extremity of the harpoon, whose other naked barbed end slopingly projects from the prow. Thereby the weapon is instantly at hand to its hurler, "'who snatches it up as readily from its rest "'as a backwoodsman swings his rifle from the wall. "'It is customary to have two harpoons "'reposing in the crotch, "'respectively called the first and second irons. "'But these two harpoons, each by its own cord, "'are both connected with the line, "'the object being this, "'to dart them both, if possible, "'one instantly after the other into the same whale, "'so that if in the coming drag one should draw out,' The other may still retain a hold. It is a doubling of the chances. But it very often happens that, owing to the instantaneous violent convulsive running of the whale upon receiving the first iron, it becomes impossible for the harpooner, however lightning like in his movements, to pitch the second iron into him. Nevertheless, as the second iron is already connected with the line, and the line is running, hence that weapon must, at all events, be anticipatingly tossed out of the boat, somehow and somewhere. Else the most terrible jeopardy would involve all hands. Tumbled into the water, it accordingly is in such cases. The spare coils of box line, mentioned in a preceding chapter, making this feat, in most instances, prudently practicable. But this critical act is not always unattended, with the saddest and most fatal casualties. Furthermore, you must know that when the second iron is thrown overboard, it thenceforth becomes a dangling, sharp-edged terror, skittishly curveting about both boat and whale, entangling the lines or cutting them, and making a prodigious sensation in all directions. Nor, in general, is it possible to secure it again until the whale is fairly captured and a corpse. Consider now how it must be in the case of four boats all engaging one unusually strong, active, and knowing whale— When owing to these qualities in him, as well as to the thousand concurring accidents of such an audacious enterprise, eight or ten loose second irons may be simultaneously dangling about him. For, of course, each boat is supplied with several harpoons to bend on to the line should the first one be ineffectually darted without recovery. All these particulars are faithfully narrated here, as they will not fail to elucidate several most important, however intricate, passages in scenes hereafter to be painted. Chapter 64. Stubb's Supper. Stubb's whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Pequod. And now, as we eighteen men with our thirty-six arms and one hundred and eighty thumbs and fingers Slowly toiled hour after hour upon that inert, sluggish corpse in the sea, and it seemed hardly to budge at all, except at long intervals. Good evidence was hereby furnished of the enormousness of the mass we moved. For, upon the great canal of Hang Ho, or whatever they call it, in China, four or five laborers on the footpath will draw a bulky freighted junk at the rate of a mile an hour but this grand argosy we towed heavily forged along, as if laden with pig-lead in bulk. Darkness came on, but three lights up and down on the Pequod's main rigging dimly guided our way, till drawing nearer we saw Ahab, dropping one of several more lanterns over the bulwarks. Vacantly eyeing the heaving whale for a moment, he issued the usual orders for securing it for the night, and then, handing his lantern to a seaman, went his way into the cabin, and did not come forward again until morning. Though, in overseeing the pursuit of this whale, Captain Ahab had evinced his customary activity, to call it so. Yet now that the creature was dead, some vague dissatisfaction or impatience or despair seemed working in him, as if the sight of that dead body reminded him that Moby Dick was yet to be slain, and though a thousand other whales were brought to his ship, all that would not one-jot advance his grand, monomaniac object. Very soon you would have thought from the sound on the Pequod's decks that all hands were preparing to cast anchor in the deep, for heavy chains are being dragged along the deck and thrust rattling out of the portholes. But by those clanking links, the vast corpse itself, not the ship, is to be moored tied by the head to the stern and by the tail to the bows. The whale now lies with its black hull close to the vessels, and seen through the darkness of the night, which obscured the spars and rigging aloft, the two, ship and whale, seemed yoked together like colossal bullocks, whereof one reclines while the other remains standing. A little item may as well be related here. The strongest and most reliable hold which the ship has upon the whale, when moored alongside, is by the flukes or tail. And as from its greater density, that part is relatively heavier than any other, excepting the side fins. Its flexibility even in death causes it to sink low beneath the surface, so that with the hand you cannot get at it from the boat in order to put the chain round it. But this difficulty is ingeniously overcome, A small strong line is prepared with a wooden float at its outer end and a weight in its middle, while the other end is secured to the ship. By adroit management, the wooden float is made to rise on the other side of the mass so that now having girdled the whale, the chain is readily made to follow suit and being slipped along the body is at last locked fast round the smallest part of the tail at the point of junction with its broad flukes or lobes." If moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least so far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. Such an unwanted bustle was he, in that the staid Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him, for the time, the sole management of affairs. One small helping cause of all this liveliness in Stubb was soon made strangely manifest. "'Stubb was a high liver. "'He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale "'as a flavorish thing to his plate. "'A steak, a steak ere I sleep. "'You, Dagu, overboard you go, and cut me one from his small.' "'Here be it known that though these wild fishermen do not, "'as a general thing, and according to the great military maxim, "'make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, "'at least before realizing the proceeds of the voyage,' Yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm whale, designated by stub, comprising the tapering extremity of the body. About midnight that steak was cut and cooked and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil. Stubb stoutly stood up to a spermaceti supper at the capstand head, as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, thousands on thousands of sharks, swarming round the dead leviathan smackingly feasted on its fatness. The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull, within a few inches of the sleepers' hearts. Peering over the side, you could just see them, as before you heard them wallowing in the sullen black waters, and turning over on their backs as they scooped out huge globular pieces of the whale, of the bigness of a human head. This particular feat of the shark seems all but miraculous. How at such an apparently unassailable surface, they contrive to gouge out such symmetrical mouthfuls remains a part of the universal problem of all things. The mark they thus leave on the whale may best be likened to the hollow made by a carpenter in countersinking for a screw. Though, amid all the smoking horror and diabolism of a sea fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up to the ship's deck, like hungry dogs round a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them, And though, while the valiant butchers over the deck-table are thus cannibally carving each other's live meat with carving knives, all gilded and tasseled, the sharks also, with their jewel-hilted mouths, are quarrelsomely carving away under the table at the dead meat. And though, were you to turn the whole affair upside down, it would still be pretty much the same thing. That is to say, a shocking sharkish business, enough for all parties." And those sharks, also, are the invariable outriders of all slave ships crossing the Atlantic, systematically trotting alongside, to be handy in case a parcel is to be carried anywhere, or a dead slave to be decently buried. And though one or two other like instances might be set down, touching the set terms, places, and occasions, when sharks do most socially congregate and most hilariously feast— Yet is there no conceivable time or occasion when you will find them in such countless numbers and in gayer or more jovial spirits than around a dead sperm-whale, moored by night, to a whale-ship at sea? If you have never seen that sight, then suspend your decision about the propriety of devil-worship and the expediency of conciliating the devil. But as yet, Stubb heeded not the mumblings of the banquet that was going on so nigh him, no more than the shark's heeded the smacking of his own epicurean lips. "'Cook, cook, where's that old fleece?' he cried at length, widening his legs still further, as if to form a more secure base for his supper, and at the same time darting his fork into the dish, as if stabbing with his lance. "'Cook, you cook, sail this way, cook!' The old man, not in any very high glee at having been previously roused from his warm hammock at a most unseasonable hour, came shambling along from his galley. For like many old men, there was something the matter with his knee-pans, which he did not keep well scoured like his other pans. This old fleece, as they called him, came shuffling and limping along, assisting his step with his tongs, which, after a clumsy fashion, were made of straightened iron hoops. This old man floundered along, and in obedience to the word of command, came to a dead stop on the opposite side of Stubb's sideboard. When, with both hands folded before him and resting on his two-legged cane, he bowed his arched back still further over, at the same time sideways inclining his head so as to bring his best ear into play. "'Cook,' said Stubb, rapidly lifting a rather reddish morsel to his mouth, "'Don't you think the steak is rather overdone? "'You've been beating the steak too much, Cook. "'It's too tender. "'Don't I always say that to be good, "'a whale steak must be tough? "'There are those sharks now over the side. "'Don't you see they prefer it tough and rare? "'What a shindy they are kicking up. "'Cook, go and talk to them. "'Tell them they are welcome to help themselves civilly "'and in moderation, but they must keep quiet. "'Blast me if I can hear my own voice.' Away, cook, and deliver my message. Here, take this lantern, snatching one from his sideboard. Now then, go and preach to them. Sullenly taking the offered lantern, old fleece limped across the deck to the bulwarks, and then, with one hand dropping his light low over the sea, so as to get a good view of his congregation, with the other hand he solemnly flourished his tongs, and leaning far over the side in a mumbling voice, began addressing the sharks while Stubb, softly crawling behind, overheard all that was said. "'Fellow critters, I've been ordered here to say "'that you must stop making that noise. "'You hear? Stop that smacking of the lips. "'Stubb, say that you can fill your damn bellies up to hatchings, "'but by God, you must stop that damn racket. "'Cook,' here interposed Stubb, "'accompanying the word with a sudden slap on the shoulder. "'Cook!' "'Why, damn your eyes, you mustn't swear that way when you're preaching. "'That's no way to convert sinners, cook.' "'Who's that?' "'Then preach them yourself,' sullenly turning to go. "'No, cook, go on, go on.' "'Well, then, fellow critters.' "'Right,' exclaimed Stubb approvingly. "'Coax em to it. Try that.' "'And Fleece continued. "'Because you are sharks and by nature very voracious,' Yet I say to you, fellow critters, that that voraciousness... Stop slapping the tail. How do you think to hear, suppose you keep up such a damn slapping and biting there? Cook, cried Stubb, collaring him. I won't have that swearing. Talk to them gentlemanly. Once more the sermon proceeded. Your voraciousness, fellow critters, I don't blame ye such for that. That is nature, and can't be helped. But... "'To that wicked nature, that is the point. "'You are sharks. "'Now look here, brethren, just try to be civil, A helping yourselves from that whale. "'Don't be tearing the blubber out of your neighbor's mouth, I say. "'Is not one shark doing right, as do that to the other whales? And "'By God, none of you has the right to do that to a whale. "'That whale belongs to someone else.' "'Well done, old fleece,' cried Stubb. "'That's Christianity. Go on.' No use going on, Master Stubb, no use going on. They don't hear one word. No use of preaching to such damn gluttons, as you call 'em, till their bellies is full, and their bellies is bottomless, and when they do get 'em full, they won't hear you then, for then they sink in the sea, and go fast asleep on the coral, and can hear nothing at all no more, forever ever and ever. Upon my soul I am about of the same opinion. So give the benediction, fleece, and I'll away to my supper. Upon this, Fleece, holding both hands over the fishy mob, raised his shrill voice and cried, "'Cursed fellow critters! Kick up the damnedest row as ever you can. Fill your damn bellies till they burst, and then die.'" "'Now cook,' said Stubb, resuming his supper at the capstan. "'Stand just where you stood before there, over against me, and pay particular attention.'" All attention, said Fleece, again stooping over upon his tongs in the desired position. Well, said Stubb, helping himself freely meanwhile, I shall now go back to the subject of this steak. In the first place, how old are you, Cook? What's that to do with steak, said the old man testily. Silence, how old are you, Cook? About ninety, they say, he gloomily muttered. And you have lived in this world hard upon one hundred years, Cook, and don't know yet how to cook a whale steak? Rapidly bolting another mouthful at the last word, so that morsel seemed a continuation of the question. Where were you born, Cook? Behind a hatchway in a ferryboat, going over the Roanoke. Born in a ferryboat? That's queer, too. But I want to know what country you were born in, Cook. "'Didn't I say Roanoke Country?' he cried sharply. "'No, you didn't cook. "'But I'll tell you what I'm coming to cook. "'You must go home and be born over again. "'You don't know how to cook a whale steak yet.' "'Bless my soul if I cook another one,' he growled, angrily, "'turning round to depart. "'Come back, cook. "'Here, hand me those tongs. "'Now take that bit of steak there "'and tell me if you think that steak is cooked as it should be. "'Take it, I say.' "'holding the tongs toward him. "'Take it and taste it.' "'Faintly smacking his withered lips over it for a moment, "'the old man muttered, "'Best cook steak I ever tasted. "'Juicy, very juicy.' "'Cook,' said Stubb, squaring himself once more. "'Do you belong to the church?' "'Passed one once in Cape Town,' said the old man sullenly. "'And you have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town.' "'Where you doubtless overheard a holy person addressing his hearers "'as his beloved fellow-creatures, have you, Cook? "'And yet you come here, and tell me such a dreadful lie as you did just now, eh?' said Stubb. "'Where do you expect to go, Cook?' "'Going to bed very soon,' he mumbled, half-turning as he spoke. vast heave to. I mean when you die, Cook. It's an awful question. Now what's your answer?' When this old man dies, he said, changing his whole air and demeanor, he himself won't go nowhere, but some blessed angel will come and fetch him. Fetch him? How? In a coach and fours they fetched Elijah. And fetch him where? Up here, said Fleece, holding his tongue straight over his head and keeping it there very solemnly. So then you expect to go up into our main top. Do you cook when you are dead? "'But don't you know the higher you climb, the colder it gets? Main top, eh?' "'Didn't say that at all,' said Fleece, again in the sulks. "'You set up there, didn't you? "'And now look yourself and see where your tongs are pointing. "'But perhaps you expect to get into heaven "'by crawling through the lubber's hole, Cook. "'But no, no, Cook, you don't get there, "'except you go the regular way, round by the rigging. "'It's a ticklish business, but must be done,' or else it's a no-go. But none of us are in heaven yet. Drop your tongs, cook, and hear my orders. Do you hear? Hold your hat in one hand and clap the other atop of your heart when I'm giving my orders, cook. What? That your heart there? That's your gizzard. Aloft, aloft. That's it. Now you have it. Hold it there now and pay attention. All attention, said the old man, with both hands placed as desired, vainly wriggling his grizzled head, as if to get both ears in front at one and the same time. Well, then, Cook, you see this whale steak of yours was so very bad that I have put it out of sight as soon as possible. You see that, don't you? Well, for the future, when you cook another whale steak for my private table here, the capstan, I'll tell you what to do so as not to spoil it by overdoing." Hold the steak in one hand and show a live coal to it with the other. That done? Dish it, do you hear? And now, tomorrow, Cook, when we are cutting in the fish, be sure you stand by to get the tips of his fins. Have them put in pickle. As for the ends of the flukes, have them sauced, Cook. There, now you may go. But Fleece had hardly got three paces off when he was recalled. Cook... Give me my cutlets for supper tomorrow night, in the mid-watch, do you hear? Away you sail, then. Hello, stop, make a bow before you go. Avast, heaving again. Whale balls for breakfast, don't forget. Wish by God the whale eat him, instead of him eating the whale. I'm blessed if he ain't more of a shark than the shark is himself, muttered the old man, limping away. With which such sage ejaculation, he went to his hammock.